You're listening to the Functional Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Patrick Hester and Tracy Townsend. And Tracy, we are definitely into May because uh, this week in Colorado, we got uh, really wonderful 80 degree weather and then we had snow Mm. and then we had really, really cold weather. And then we had some rain. And then on the next day, uh, just kidding. Yeah. It's like a Colorado joke. Yeah. 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 I get it. I get it. <laughs> that, that you're more or less describing the arc of, of Chicago recently, except we are on the just got done with the rain and now it's getting nice end of the cycle. Uh, apparently the forecast for next week is all 80 degrees plus um which you know i feel almost obliged to like get out a um a a, a a a a conversion table of some sort because we our guest is canadian and i feel like i should be i should be uh issuing these in in celsius kate i'm sorry we're talking about 80 degrees that's hot so so yeah it's, 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 it's all quite good hot. <laughs> <laughs> so. So we're with Kate Hartfield as our guest this week. You may remember Kate from the Alice Payne novellas that came out just a couple of years ago. It got some really great reviews. And were you Nebula and Hugo nominated, or am I am I crossing my streams there? Uh, just Nebula nominated, yeah, yeah, and just some other things Nebula, like that's all. Yeah, just and the, the Aurora Award. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No Hugo nominations yet. So yeah. Well, then maybe maybe we can uh, see about helping make that happen for the embroidered book, which <laughs> when this episode lands, the embroidered book is going to be hot on the heels of the episode coming out uh, in the United States and and in Canada. And it's it's already out in the UK from Harper Voyager, right? Yep, that's right. Fantastic. Yeah, it came out in February. All right. So. So brief us. The embroidered book I know is historical fantasy. I know we have in the most simplistic possible terms, Marie Antoinette plus magic. But I think the question that that comes to me is like, why this period? Why this context? Like, what what's what's the vision here? Yeah, so it's Marie Antoinette and her sister Charlotte, who is uh, otherwise known as Maria Carolina of Naples, and they are both secretly magicians. So the book follows pretty much the known events of history, but there is secret magic happening in the background. And I just find that period of history, the the eighteenth century fascinating for a bunch of reasons. I mean, it's a period of very rapid change, obviously, you know, a time of revolution. And there were so many quite powerful, privileged women in Europe whose stories I felt that I hadn't heard enough about. Mm -hmm. And I was interested in how they were able to use their power and the choices that they had to make. So it just, yeah, it's it's fascinated me for many years. And it seemed like a great uh, subject for a novel. So not to not to like give anything away here, but this is all cover copy, so I feel like this is <laughs> you know. But we're one of the one of the tensions, of course, that emerges is that you know Marie Antoinette is this figure of like historical infamy. Like her story has been sort of told and retold, and I imagine you know enough about it to to feel that maybe it's been not told with fidelity. Yeah. But, you know, Charlotte is a character who I think most people know nothing about mm-hmm. and sort of giving the, the story a chance to emerge through Charlotte's view and mm-hmm. also kind of exploring the growing tension between those sisters is sort of a huge part of the book. So I'm kind of interested in, like, how how creative did you find yourself getting not just with, like, let's make it magic, but also the actual dynamics of the characters and the history and, and what we know with it? 
Yeah, yeah. It was an interesting dichotomy there because, as you say, I mean, Marie Antoinette is almost too well known to the point where a lot of what we know about her is kind of, you know, memes and um, kind of cartoonish. Uh, And uh, I think almost I almost had to get beyond what people think they know about her and uh, to get to some version of the real story, you know, And, and it's sort of in the title, the embroidered book is, you know, one meaning of that there is that it is embroidered, all history is embroidered in, in certain ways and through a lens. And we, yeah, with Charlotte, it is definitely the opposite problem that, you know, people don't know about her, which is, it, it's weird because she was a very powerful figure uh, yeah, right before the Napoleonic Wars. Um, you know, Napoleon was afraid of her because uh, she was pretty much the only, <laughs> the only sovereign who uh, would stand up to him. And, you know, she was just this very interesting uh, sovereign who ran the country, even though her husband uh, was the monarch in name. Mm -hmm. So uh, they seemed like sort of two sides of a coin where Charlotte had kind of been erased from popular history and and Marie Antoinette has been remembered in odd ways, I think. So I love, I I, I love the dangling there with remembered in odd ways. And you, (laughs) I mean, you mentioned the sort of like almost meme like way that we've preserved what we think of being true with, with, Marie Antoinette. Mm-hmm. But I tell tell me it tell me an odd thing about her that hasn't been preserved. Like I love that sort of random <laughs> trivia. <thing. laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean the the big thing obviously, I think um, you know, her saying let them eat cake uh almost certainly didn't happen. Um and she was actually quite concerned um about people people's welfare. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, whether she had a clue about that, whether she um you know, did anything, made any good choices about that is another question, but she was definitely very concerned about poverty uh, in in France. Um, and I think some other things people maybe don't realize about her is that um, her becoming a fashion icon um, was very deliberate and not natural for her. When she first arrived in France, she was, uh, you know, considered to be quite dowdy and, and unfashionable. She didn't want to wear the clothing that uh, had been de rigueur in Versailles for a long time. Uh, and, you know, she, she she was sort of under attack uh, from the court gossips so much. And so she made herself fashionable as a way to kind of make her stamp on Versailles and to um, to say, look, you're not getting rid of me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a, a lot of her personality that we think of as being uh, sort of intrinsic to her was, was really constructed. And so um, that to me seemed like a good jumping off point for a magic system because, uh, so much of what these women were doing were deliberate choices to say, I'm going to choose this, I'm going to sacrifice that, I'm going to look for power in certain places. And all of that, you know, really lent itself to that metaphor of magic and and sacrifice to get uh, to enchant magical items. Uh, so it all fit together really nicely. I remember seeing, um, an, I think it was at the Nebulas, actually, but I remember, uh, this is a few years ago, sitting in a panel at the Nebulas and seeing a bunch of uh, different authors of fantasy talking about magic systems and mm-hmm. having kind of a discussion about like the, 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 the role of rules in magic systems. And naturally, you know, you end up talking about things like, you know, Kevin Hearn and I'm going mm-hmm. to consume types of metals in order to invoke the magics or, um, you know, uh, Another, you know, Brandon Sanderson tends to have like really elaborate magical systems and stuff. And I remember Charlie Jane Anders weighing in and she made the assertion that like, I don't, I don't know that you have to have rules and limits and like systems. And like, isn't that sort of antithetical to the notion that magic bends reality? Um, 
and so it, it but you know we've got the idea of like fashion here as like a, a weaponizing a weaponizing uh, a tool for reality mm-hmm. which i think is really interesting so okay it's just uh, is it fashion magic? Like, what? It, what are the rules? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, and I find it really interesting too. The, um, you know, the systemization of magic and fantasy, and uh, I like it kind of both ways. I really enjoy magic that is um, a little bit ineffable, and uh, nobody knows how it works. Um, and at the core, the magic system in the embroidered book is not something anybody really understands. It has the roots of the of the secret society that controls the use of magic in the book go back to the middle ages and uh the rituals and that kind of thing have a sort of medieval flavor to them but because we're in the enlightenment by this point um there is this sort of layer of math and um of science that people have put on top of it to try to understand how magic works and um you know so it it sort of fit into the history that way so there are some rules uh and some uh you know some some like i say some systemization that goes on top of it but at the core nobody really has any idea what's going on and uh the the way that it works for the characters in the book is that uh you know you can sacrifice um objects such as parts of the body or or treasures things that you you personally treasure Mm -hmm. or you can also sacrifice things like memories love and hope uh, and uh, you sort of write these things down and, and put them into the star on the floor and uh, and then you can enchant an object. Uh, so as the book goes on, the characters are losing their memories of what they've done, what they've sacrificed, and they're losing pieces of themselves in literal and metaphorical ways. And uh, so that I think kind of echoed the choices that people make in power and how they um, turn themselves into somebody else to try to wield that power. Yeah. So, so you don't have like a like a penalty for someone uh, in your fashion magic system who wears white after Labor Day. <laughs> no, no, nothing like that. No, although there's, <laughs> yeah, it's it's very much sort of uh, you pay the price at the beginning. So if you want to um, enchant, you know, a pair of earrings that will let you hear uh, something from across a room, for example, um, you know, you might put your love for your sister into the sacrifice and you'll put, you know, three gold coins or whatever. And then, um, and then you'll get the object, but the objects are not all necessarily pieces of fashion. It's, it's all kinds of objects can be enchanted. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. So, so basically what I'm hearing is that uh, you were inspired by the Met Gala and all the funky weird things that people <laughs> do in that thing. It's very, <laughs> yeah. The, the parallels are, are uh, pretty stark. Yeah. Between the 18th century and the Met Gala. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah. What's the thing that's making all the rounds? Uh, uh, Brian Reynolds and Blake oh, Lively. Blake Lively. Thank you. Yeah. They they uh, they hosted it or they co-hosted it or they yeah. they they were like the people in charge of it and she had a a dress that transformed. Yeah. Yeah. It was gorgeous. It was like um, a coppery greeny color and a sort of pinky color. I think it was supposedly inspired by the Statue of Liberty. And exactly. The, yep. the, yeah. The oxidization yeah. process. Yeah. Very cool. I thought. But, but you want to talk about magic. It's like it's like here's a dress that's one color yeah. and then unfold some things. And oh, guess what? It's a different color. So, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, it's very cool. It reminded me a lot of uh, Princess Aurora's dress in the old Sleeping Beauty cartoon, uh, when the the <laughs> yeah, fairy uh, the fairies are changing it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> pink yeah. to green or pink to blue. Yeah. I just I just always get fed uh, anything by Ryan Reynolds because he he cracks me up all the time, and uh, the, I got I got some stuff fed to me on that because of his reaction. Uh-huh. Because apparently he didn't know that the dress transformed. <laughs> oh, nice. And then when she transforms the dress, he kind of turns and he looks and his jaw just hits the floor and he's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he seems like such a genuinely nice guy. He does. I want him yeah. to be. He's, yeah. he's one of those people that I really want him to be no, who I he appears I never, to be. I never want an expose on him. Yes. No, exactly. And, and I recognize <laughs> that like that's part of the reason why we end up in situations where we're terrible things happen to people and then news about it comes out and then nothing happens to deal with the situation because there are folks like me, like I refuse. Like, <laughs> yeah. let, my, let my cinnamon roll be a cinnamon roll. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But so far, so good. Fingers yeah. crossed. So far, so good. Yeah. Him and him and Chris Evans. Um, yeah. If, if that, if that, if that thing falls apart, then I, then I will have written down hope on a, on a piece of paper. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. At that point. <laughs> but I think yeah. you're know, going back to the idea of like, um, Marie Antoinette transforming herself mm-hmm. in court as a, as a sort of like statement of purpose, um, mm-hmm. you know, and kind of a, a statement about her presence and her intention to kind of um, be the commander of her space. I remember really vividly growing up feeling, and I think this is like a tomboy thing, feeling that it was like my job to reject traditional ways that women were supposed to dress and groom themselves and whatnot um, because I don't know, like baked in misogyny, the idea that, that this is all sort of frivolousness. Um, And it wasn't until much later, like right about the time I got into college that the, the metaphor of sort of war paint and armor kind of entered Mm -hmm. the conversation for me. And this is by way of talking to other women. Mm -hmm. Um, But the, the, the idea that like, you're not, you're not necessarily engaging in something frivolous when you put on these sorts of clothes or you do these sorts of like aesthetic manipulations that you're, you're doing something that is about kind of like suiting up, um, you know, going back to the superhero stuff. Um, oh, I thought you were going to how I met yeah. your mother and Barney suit up. <laughs> that is, you might be shocked to know shocked, sir, a show I have not watched. Um, yes. <laughs> Um, Come on, yeah, Tim, yeah. suit up. <laughs> I've never seen it either, so I guess we have to do a uh, a marathon. <laughs> oh my goodness! Yeah, Barney. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's another. It's a fun character in a fun arc. But mm-hmm. it, one of the things is he always wears a suit. He th- he feels that everybody needs to wear a suit. Yeah, that yeah. you just look more professional and you're just better when you're wearing a suit. And it drives him up a wall that his best friend refuses to ever wear a suit. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's uh, let's yeah. we got we got two two women identifying persons in yep. the virtual room, so to speak. I'm gonna turn this on you here, Patrick. Is there? Do you think that there is a male equivalent to the kind of like makeup as war paint, you know, fancy dress as body armor kind of? There's thing? a song about it. It was a yeah. big hit in the '80s. Yeah. Every girl crazy about a sharp dressed man. That's true. Do, do, do you think that that's a song that like literally goes through the heads of, of dudes as they're, <laughs> as they're tying their Windsor knots and whatnot? <laughs> yes. I, I mean, I mean, uh, yes, because, because there's definitely like, there's always this, 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 
this push. I mean, we were talking a little bit before recording about the the Hugo Awards. You and I are yeah. Hugo in in the Worldcon. Yeah. Uh, people dress up for that. Mm-hmm. People in the audience dress up for that, right? Mm-hmm. Why? Mm-hmm. Because yeah. it's a, it's an event. It's a thing, right? So people like to dress up. Now, not everybody does. You'll have someone who's dressed, uh, you know, to the tens or to the nines or however you want to say it. Uh, sitting next to someone in in shorts and a t-shirt, but y- you do have that, right? And and you look at things like uh, there was a writers conference here in Colorado, uh, Pikes Peak Writers. They always have an event where everybody dresses up, mm-hmm. right? Have the big dinner kind of thing. So I just think it's something that that uh, we associate with with adulthood, professionalism, mm-hmm. right? It's like everybody dress up, you know, present your best self. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I remember the first time I went to the Nebula Awards, or, or I should say the first time I was planning on going to the Nebula Awards, and I was talking to someone who was, you know, much more familiar with them than I was, and they they dropped a comparison to him. They said it's nerd prom. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. sort of what it is. It's 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 like the nerdiest nerd prom. Um, and I got there and saw exactly what they meant and was able to appreciate that, like, yes, there are people wearing, you know, ball gowns or suit and tie or, or even tuxes or things like that. But there are also people who are showing up with, like, their steampunk cosplay, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. sort of thing. And it's it, it runs the, the whole gamut. Um, yeah, I remember the year I was there, I'm pretty sure John Scalzi had – um, Garden of Earthly Delights shoes, um, like Hieronymus <laughs> Bosch shoes. They were very cool. Yeah, I've only been once to the Nebulas in person, but uh, yeah, it was great. And there I would say like the Nebulas people dress up more consistently than at the Hugos. Yes. Uh, and it's a smaller crowd, you know. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. it's more, it's, a, it's also a more professional crowd. Yeah. Yeah. So sure. Hugos, you have more fans mm-hmm. in attendance. Yeah. And, and a lot of those fans tend to not dress up. Yeah. So. The, the nerd prom thing is also apt because if you think about like what prom is in in like the high school context, it's this like big turning out affair for folks who have known each other for a long time. And they're mm-hmm. sort of like performing this adulthood and performing this this glamour for one another. And if you're at the Nebulas, then it's a largely professionalized body of people who are sort of performing this for one another like they have more in common with like a class of students who have been together for a period of time than they do with you know here is an assemblage of of persons of of general interest sure Mm -hmm. well and there's also the thing where where you you dress up and and you put your best foot forward and people tell you you look nice yeah and it makes you feel good makes you feel good about yourself right so there's nothing wrong with that either yeah does that kind of answer your question Oh yeah, I think that's a, that's a very fair answer. So yeah, yeah. I mean, winding it back into the historical fantasy piece, I'm thinking about the Alice Payne books, which I have read, um, <laughs> and and the embroidered book, which I have not read, um, but will. And it's a it's a big chunk. It'll take you a while. <laughs> yeah, it's, it'll, take, it'll take a minute. Um, yeah, that, that, that's fine. And. I, one of the you mentioned being really engaged by um, the 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 17th century and um and the enlightenment and and so forth and i'm thinking about it and like why broadly speaking why historical fantasy like mm-hmm. it could be fantasy about anything but you've chosen um and in alice Payne, we're even moving through time like it's not mm-hmm. just like this one time but like we are we are in many times we are in many places um but why 
why historical fantasy when when being a writer of fantasy could allow you to do literally anything? Yeah, yeah, I do seem to keep coming back to it, especially in in long form stuff. And, um, you know, I'm really comfortable in historical settings. And like my next one after the embroidered book is, uh, and we can talk about this too in a minute if you want, but is uh, an Assassin's Creed book, which obviously is also in historical setting. Um, so, I mean, I say obviously for those who know Assassin's Creed. Um, yeah. yeah, and it, it does seem to be sort of where I'm comfortable a lot to uh, go back in historical settings. And I think one of the reasons is that I find it kind of inherently uncanny. So looking back and sort of speculating on history feels uh, feels like fantasy in that way. It, it is, I think it is speculative because we, we know what we know, but we never know everything, right? And so we're sort of piecing together um, a picture of what it was like from little bits and pieces. So it's not that different than science fiction in that way, is that you're, you're kind of constructing a narrative from what you know or what you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think they, they sort of fit together to me that... Um, uh, that speculative part of it and the historical part of it. And I've just always really been fascinated by, um, by history. And I think especially these days too, because, um, you know, we're living in such interesting times. I mean, when are we not, but you know, right now, I mean, it just, it feels, it feels like nobody knows kind of where humanity is going and how we got here. And so looking back and, and say, okay, well, how did we get here? You know, like, what are, what were the steps along the way that, that got humanity to this place in 2022? And so that's something that always occupies me as well. And so, um, you know, looking back at history um, really interests me for that reason. Yeah. Yeah. I can so, tell you how we got here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Left turn in Albuquerque. Yes. I, literally, metaphorically, all of the all of the ease. Yeah, yeah, I can totally see that. So the, we had uh, Elsa Elsa Hunson on a mm-hmm. few months ago talking, and uh, she was slightly circumspect about um, her own Assassin's Creed books because the yeah. there, there were various NDAs and blood oaths and things surrounding <laughs> them. Yeah, but I, I I can't help but be curious, like a bit of a sideways leap here, but you've also written for choice of games, which, you know, isn't just a, that that's not just fiction set in a game world. It is fiction. That is also a game Mm -hmm. that it stands unto its own. So what kind of a skill set are we talking about there? Because I've, I've known some people who've written for choice of games and it is sort of mind blowingly different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Interactive fiction um, is, it's lots of fun. It's, it's a lot of work because you have to write, you know, multiple versions of the same scene and any given player is only going to read one of them. So, um, you know, there's a lot going on behind the sort of the, the iceberg, you know, uh, you only see the top of it. Um, and it is a different way of thinking about storytelling. And because of all that, um, you know, you have to kind of do a lot of work up front, like a lot more outlining and less revision. And I remember reading Max Gladstone's blog about this years ago when I was first starting to write for Choice of Games because he had written for Choice of Games and mm-hmm. um, and had a blog post about, um, you know, the fact that as, as, as a reviser, someone coming from novels, you have to learn how to not do too much of that because... <laughs> Uh, you know, any conversation in interactive fiction, you know, you decide to have another person enter the room and it's like, oh, God, that's a month of writing, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so uh, so it's a little bit different from a process perspective that way. Um, but, yeah, it was really cool. I did two projects for them, uh, both of them also in historical settings. And uh, I think interactive fiction also really helped me to think about plot and think about um 
you know, character agency and that kind of thing. Uh, so I really appreciate having the chance to do that. And I wrote a little bit for a video game as well. I wrote for um, Evil Genius 2, which came out last year. Uh, so I'd like to do some more game writing as well. Now, that's one answer to the question. What's the other answer to the question? You opened the other door, Kate. (laughs) You opened the other door. Somebody made me do it. I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) I was hard up for cash. What do you want? Yeah. That's that's the other answer. No, I mean, uh, I don't know if there's another answer. (laughs) I'm just teasing. (laughs) I was, I was a thousand percent. And obviously the, the interactive fiction as it exists today as a, as a digital medium is much more sophisticated than like your old school choose your own adventures. But I was 100% the kid who would do a choose your own adventure book. And I would like 12 pages in make the decision that sends me directly towards the jaws of death. And I'd be <laughs> yeah. like, well, and just sort of flip back a few pages and be like, not going there. You see <laughs> what's, what, what's funny is like the, the modern day equivalent I, I think is, is some of the RPGs that have come out on the consoles, you know, like mass effect. Right. Right. And you can pick the direction that you want to go by, by picking the, the different answers. And then it takes you down a different tree. And like, you can be, you can be the paragon or you can be the, the the bastard. Right. And I I always, I always end up going paragon. And then I go back and I'm like, I'm going to do this where I'm going to be evil. And then Mm -hmm. as the character is getting evil, I start feeling guilty. Oh yeah, yeah, you kind of bulk a bit. You know, and then yeah. I'm like, I can't do this. I can't be this bastard. Like I gotta <laughs> and then I start like being nice again and by the end of my paragon I'm like, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's always really interesting to me the way that people uh engage with interactive fiction because some people uh are able to just see it as a character the same way they would be reading about a character in prose, and other people the player character is very much their avatar and, and they wouldn't do something as in a game that they wouldn't do in real life kind of thing. Yep. And it's kind of a spectrum there. Yeah. Like when you, when we talk about something being escapist, are we talking about it in the sense of, I want to escape the constraints that I feel that I am under so that I can be this rat bastard and not <laughs> really face consequences in a substantive way. Um, or do we mean escapist in the sense of like, no, I want to escape from the life that I am living so that I can be like this, like, optimized version of myself or mm-hmm. yeah it's, it's interesting the meta that has come around a bit because you, what you just described patrick is one 100 what my husband does he will mm-hmm. in any game that allows you to kind of track towards moral polarities he'll play it paragon style first mm-hmm. and then he will gender flip the character because that's typically an option and yep. then play it to the to the opposite end uh the second time and he's committed like he, he doesn't he doesn't waver in those things. He sort of feels like he is he's sequestered it into a separate universe where it's like this is fine. I've already done the good thing. I'm just exploring what would happen if I had done these other things. So so basically, you know, uh, uh, murdering the younglings. He's not ten minutes later in the bathroom crying, going, "I didn't mean to do it." No, I think he's probably just envisioning his last argument with my son when he murders the younglings. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> some stuff to work out here. <laughs> Find a healthy outlet. <laughs> Fantastic. So we speaking, are speaking of a healthy outlet. Yeah, healthy outlet. Okay, help us out here, Patrick. Save us. Picks of the week. 
Patrick, model good behaviors and coping strategies for us, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am. I'm, uh, I, uh, I'm going to pick this week a show that I waited for the like. I watched the first episode. And then I waited for the last episode before I watched any more of them. Mm-hmm. Because I think I think this is the show that you have to do that with because I feel like I feel like it's a slow burn. Mm, gotcha. Season one was a slow burn. I felt like season two also had a slow burn, but it's Picard. Mm-hmm. So Picard on Paramount Plus. And I think having watched it, I enjoyed it quite a bit. I liked I liked the story. I liked what they did and where they went with the characters. The the stuff that bugs me, I think, can be tied to the fact that Sir Patrick is just getting old. Mm-hmm. And he can't do quite as much as he used to. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like he he might he might keep going back to Professor X because it allows him to sit all the time. <laughs> you know, he, um. he almost looks like I, I feel bad for him when he's walking around now because he's got the hunched shoulders, you know, and he, 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 I don't know. So I just feel like he's getting old and, and, and that makes me sad because, you know, he's Captain Picard, but I, I enjoyed the show quite a bit. They, they did have, they did have a, a, a nice story arc mm-hmm. and they, they got into his head, but those are the parts that kind of bored me. Mm-hmm. The parts where they got into his head to figure out kind of why who he is and what he is and why he is the way he is, but again, I think that 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 was a choice in storytelling because it allowed them to use other actors, yeah, <laughs> young yeah. actors to play young Picard, mm-hmm. and you know someone to play this character or that character. I'm trying not to be spoilery, but like <laughs> they were able to do other things and still call it Picard without having to have Sir Patrick in every scene. If that makes sense. It, it was good. I did enjoy it. I would binge all of it at once. I would not try to do the one a week thing that Paramount Plus wants you to do. Yeah, it is interesting how that how they keep wavering back and forth by different streaming services and so on about whether or not they're going to just dump a whole season or if they're going to sort of inch it out piece by piece. And it does seem like like going serialized is has returned to being in vogue. They, it, there's two reasons why. One is economic because it forces people to stay. Subscribe. So if they do ten, if they do ten episodes, mm-hmm. you have to stay at least three months, mm-hmm. right, to get mm-hmm. all ten episodes. the The second reason I think that, or at least that they say that they do it, is because it keeps the show in the public sphere longer. So you have this this longer conversation about the show. It keeps people talking about Paramount Plus. It keeps them talking about Disney plus, you know, it keeps them talking about Hulu for Mm -hmm. weeks or months instead of, Oh my God, did you go see, did you watch this? Did you see stranger things? It was so fucking fantastic. And then the next day you're talking about something else. Yeah. And I I think there may be something to the court of public opinions perception too, that like if you dump the whole season at once, there can also be this false perception that like, there's no new content yeah. When in fact, like they just gave you like six hours of content right there or whatever it was. That's that's a lot. Like that's but but if no if because they did that, there aren't other new series that appear to be running all the time. It, it creates a lot of production pressure, I think. And I wonder if, you know, especially because Netflix has been sort of running around with a scythe chopping away a lot of its programming um, that they've realized that that, you know, 
they well, they're they're platforms. freaking out. They're freaking out yeah. because they lost subscribers. Yeah, yeah. And they're and they're they're. Stock is yeah, going to Paramount make. Plus, obviously, it's its own thing, but it's got to yeah. be looking over the fence at what the other guys are doing. Yeah. Kate, how about you? Mm-hmm. What's your pick of the week? Yeah, well, uh, mine is actually a Netflix show, which is uh, Russian Doll, which had its season two come out recently. And I think a lot of us who enjoyed season one were a bit nervous because season one seemed very self-contained. I and mean, Russian Doll is um, a sort of bizarre show starring Natasha Lyon. Um, or is it Leon? Does I think know? it's Leon. Is it Leon? Yeah. Okay, yes. Thank you. So Natasha Leon. As I said it, I'm like, that's not right. <laughs> um, yeah. So she's she's fantastic in it, and and it's such a bonkers, um, beautiful, strange show. And so that you know, the first season did sort of exploded the sort of Groundhog Day trope in in really interesting ways, and it was it was uh, really well done. And I think everyone thought, well, how can they do a season two uh, because it was such a complete arc. But then season two explored a different trope and uh, and sort of uh, found a new way to deepen the story. And uh, I really enjoyed it and thought it was just beautifully done. Um, so I'm now I'm hoping for a season three. So that was great. That's awesome. Fantastic. All right. So um, for me, longtime listeners will be will be shocked and surprised to know that I am recommending a game. And um, not a TV and, show. Yeah. And not, what? Hang on. For, for, our, for our next episode, sir, I have I have movies to talk about. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So there, I win. Um, anyway, so um, this game is called Equinox, and it's been out for a couple of years. And people who have been uh, tabletop board gaming for longer periods of time, if they look up Equinox, may go, wait a minute, this seems kind of familiar, and it should, because it's actually a reskin of an earlier game called Colossal Arena. Um, but this particular version of Equinox is, is uh, game-designed and written by Reiner Nizia, uh, who, if you're a games person, you should is a name that you should recognize behind a lot of really uh, successful and, and enduring titles. Basic idea behind it is you are imagining that you are uh, empowered, you and the other players, with the ability to endorse um, literally with like little magic stones that you use for like voting and betting purposes. Um, you that you are endorsing your belief in different uh, fantastical fae type characters, different beings of the forest, and these are laid out in a kind of grid map um, on the on the uh, table, and then you get a bunch of cards that are ranked between uh, the numbers zero and. 10 and these allow you to basically kind of like make an investment in certain characters the idea behind it is at the end of the game there's only a limited number of these randomly shuffled out of the deck characters whose memories will survive the passage of time such that they will live on in stories it's you know it's just themey stuff Uh, but the game mechanics fundamentally is a screw your neighbor um, betting mechanic sabotage game and so while that sounds very sort of like I don't know, peaceful and agrarian and arboreal and whatnot. It's actually a pretty, like if you like to game with a group of people who will troll each other and absolutely hate draft things and mess with each other and table talk a lot, this is a good game for you. (laughs) Um, And because that is basically the description of my entire relationship with my children and my husband, this has been a really good addition to our family table. Um, 
Equinox plays pretty fast. The whole thing goes in about 40 minutes. Um, the rules are not in any way complicated. The art is really cool and fun. And if you have a group of people who you feel comfortable gaming with, um, that you really particularly like to kind of, you know, rib each other and things like that, it works off of that kind of table chemistry really well. So check out Equinox. Very cool. I, I, I like those kinds of games where you get to mess with the other people. Not everybody does. No, and I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, we were talking before with like video games and the Paragon bastard sort of things, like how much can you divide yourself from the game? <laughs> um, like somehow I, I feel worse in a video game doing mean things to not real people than I feel doing mean things to actual people who I know yeah. and have to live with at a gaming table. <laughs> and exactly. I think it's because like my ability to apologize to them or something later is not on rails <laughs> from a menu. Um, so there's that. I don't now, know. Now, what I'm curious about, Kate, did you did you did you watch the entire season of of Russian Doll season two? Did you watch it all at one go, or did you split it up? Um, I watched it pretty much in one go. Yeah, I tend okay. to be someone who watches a lot in one go as well. I I prefer that to the um to the one a week model. Sure. Although I understand the you know, the rationale behind the one a week drop. But uh, yeah, I think I watched it over like three or four days. Uh, so I just sort of watched it when I could. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, we're watching, uh, I haven't watched Picard yet at all, but my son and I um, have been watching, rewatching Voyager. Uh, so I'm in the mood to watch Picard after that. <laughs> I, you know what? It's funny because Voyager is one of those shows that, that, that gets shit on quite a bit. I enjoyed Voyager. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's my favorite, I think, but I know I'm in the minority there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just love Janeway, and of course, uh, who doesn't love Seven? So, uh, you know, Neelix is, is an acquired taste. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, yeah. And and we just talked about it not too long ago, on Star Trek Lower Decks, they actually have Tom Paris come on board. Yeah. And it's yeah. because there are the Voyager the Voyager crew are doing like victory laps throughout the fleet and, and kind of like bumping people up and, and making them feel good. And there's like these collector plates and Boimler has the collector plates that have all the different bridge crew from Voyager on them. And he just needs Tom Parrish to sign his. Aww. It's hilarious. <laughs> he ends up, he ends up accidentally through the course of the episode, uh, appearing in front of Tom Paris looking like a Kazon, <laughs> which does not go well. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen that yet, but I'm looking forward to that too. There's a lot. There's a lot of good Star Trek content out there right now. There is some fantastic Star Trek out there. Yeah, yeah, I did watch Strange New Worlds. I'll talk about that in another mm-hmm. episode. But yeah, mm-hmm. I, I did watch Strange New Worlds, and I enjoyed that quite a bit too. All right. So, Kate, it's been awesome having you on. Um, your book is going to land in in the North Americas in the very near future. Where can people find mm-hmm. you and all of your cool stuff? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the embroidered book is out in North America on May 24th. Um, and it's out in most of the rest of the world already. Um, my Assassin's Creed book is called The Magus Conspiracy. And that's out uh, in uh, early August, August 2nd, everywhere. Um, and you can always find me on Twitter. Um, sadly, um, I'm there as Kate Hartfield. <laughs> <laughs> there far too often. Um, Instagram, uh, I'm also Kate Hartfield. And you can see a lot of pictures of my cat if that interests you. All right. Thanks very much, Kate. Yeah, thanks so much. It was uh, really nice to be on. Nice to see you. Hello, Robert. How you doing, Robert? 
Here's your new bumper, Robert. The one you asked for. Thanks for listening to the Functional Nerds Podcast. Because I've always partnered with teachers as co-hosts, we have homework for you. Giles and Michelle are kind of cool. They have a podcast called Beyond the Functional Nerd. Oh, hold on. Uh, got a memo coming in here. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, uh, I guess they call it Beyond the Trope now. I honestly don't know if that's new or what. They even have a website for it, though. Beyondthetrope.com. Their podcast is weekly, just like ours, and they talk with people, just like we do, every Tuesday. So if you listen to us, and then go listen to them, and that is really, really important. You have to do it in that order. It's kind of like a double feature, and double features are cool. So check them out over at Beyond the Functional Ner- uh, Sorry, wait. <laughs> sorry. Beyondthetrope.com. Yeah, that's it. Beyondthetrope.com. Now, if you enjoyed today's episode, or really any of our episodes, there's lots of things you can do to support us and let us know you like these things, okay? A little bit of validation. We love validation. You could go to wherever you listen to our episodes. Uh, Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever, and give us some stars and reviews. Say something nice about us. You could head over to patreon.com slash functional nerds and toss a couple bucks our way. You could get a supporting or attending membership for Worldcon and nominate us for a Hugo Award in 2023. See, I'm kind of getting ahead of it this time. Uh, It's far too late for 2022, but 2023 is doable. If you need, like, if you have questions, just reach out and and ask me how that works. And I I can explain it to you, Todd. You could buy our books. Tracy's got a couple out there. I've got a novel and some novellas out there. Google that shit, people. That would be awesome. You could stop two random strangers in the street and tell them all about us. Like just people you're passing as you're walking. Now, <laughs> if you do that, like uh, make some serious eye contact. Don't, don't blink. Just stare at them right in the eye and tell them to listen to us and why they should. There's probably some stuff I'm forgetting. <laughs> I'm sure Robert will let me know or Todd. Whatever happened to Beware the Hairy Mango? Isn't Mucho Mango Mayo Month yet? Hmm. I should go Google that. Mr. Carpiers, you got it right. How about that? Yeah. You can call me Cannoli Joe. Oh, for God's sake. Patrick Louise. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably a good enough signal. (laughs) I'm so excited.